Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, welcome to Talk Easy, a weekly podcast of intimate interviews with the people shaping our culture today. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for tuning in. This week on the show, we have legendary actor Robert Forrester. Since 1967, the Rochester-born performer has been in front of the camera in roles both big and small. He's played bad guys, good guys, bondmen, lovers, fighters, fathers, and grandfathers. He's worked with every sort of director from various eras, including John Huston, Haskell Wexler, Quentin Tarantino, David Lynch, and Alexander Payne. To those who perhaps don't know Forrester by name, his filmography highlights include Medium Cool, Mulholland Drive, Lucky Number Eleven, The Descendants, and most recognizably for his Oscar-nominated work in Jackie Brown. And looking at his varied IMDb page, Forrester truly is a cross-generational talent. There are more pertinent facts about his life, many of which we get into throughout this sprawling interview. Forrester is the type of human being who invites another human being into his regular morning breakfast shop to talk for two hours. He's endlessly generous and kind, a natural-born storyteller. For the first time in the years I've been doing this, I was given a gift before even conducting an interview with the subject. In a red box with a bow, there was a letter opener. And oddly enough, I'm I'm pretty sure, I can't remember now, but I, I think I've been wanting a letter opener for a while. But letter, openers, but letter openers are kind of one of those things where you always talk about getting them but never actually do until you do. Um, anyway, thank you, Robert. Apparently, this letter opener gift is customary for Forrester, who gives one of these to every actor he works with on set. 
he's the type of person you kind of hope you end up turning out to be when you grow up. And um, again, that's not just hyperbolic sentiment, I think. By the end of this conversation, you'll understand a little bit where I'm coming from. So, finally, here is Robert Forrester. Tell me what what this you you come here every morning or is this your spot? You got to have a spot. Okay. I've had a spot for uh, as many years as I've been doing this. My first spot was Schwab's Drugstore. Do you remember the name of Schwab's Drugstore? Well, you know, I know this because I did research last night and I heard you talk about it. Uh-huh. In some speech, you were talking about it. Well, uh, Lana Turner was supposed to have been discovered wearing an Angora sweater at the fountain uh, at Schwab's Drugstore, which was located on Sunset Boulevard right. at Laurel Canyon. And it was a spot for hundreds of regulars. And that included uh, actors and directors and writers and publicists and uh, horse players and hookers and hangers-on and all kinds of <laughs> folks. Uh, and it was a real fun place to go for breakfast. But then it closed in 83 and so everyone went to the Four Winds. I went to a spot directly across the street from where we are now. But And that place was torn down several years ago. But for 27 years, that was my spot. Mm-hmm. And now for the last three or four years, this is my spot. Right. And, and you need that in your life. Yes. I start here every morning. I read the paper. I do any work that I've got to do. I read scripts. I take meetings. I... Uh, uh, and they, as you can see, put a little reserve sign on the table. Yeah. It is a thrill to have a spot. They, they like you here. They like me here. I'm, uh, uh, you know, I sit in. It's a window, as you can see. It's. Um, I feel like uh, Joe Lewis, who later in his career spent time as a greeter in uh, a couple of different restaurants. One of them was uh, in New York City on Times Square, and I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but I would pass by, and uh, Joe Lewis would be uh, sitting there in the window, and as people walked in, uh, greeted them. Did you, do you greet people when they come in here? Oh, not actually, but uh, anybody <laughs> who comes by and waves, I wave back. Really? Do people come, and do they know you're here? And people you know, come some. Say, you know, really? this is... Uh, yeah. It's a small town. It's small. L.A. It seems big to people. I don't live here. It seems large. Well, it's spread out. It's uh, you live in a uh, one of the great cities, uh, San Francisco, and yeah. that's a city. City, city. And uh, occasionally when I go to work in places like New York or uh, Toronto uh, uh, or Montreal or you name it, Vancouver, these are real cities mm. that you can walk around. So when I... Uh, you know, get uh, wind up in a hotel. I'm always hopeful that it's close to the center where I can uh, get right. up and walk around and so forth. How you doing, Freddie? Freddie just walked by. That's amazing. That that happens in the moment of this uh, conversation. Well, it happens. So, your love for a city. You you were born in Rochester, right? Rochester, New York, which is uh, small. I know nothing about Ro- city. I, I know nothing about Rochester. So. Rochester used to be a, a thriving place in upstate New York on Lake Ontario because of three uh, industries: um, Kodak, Bausch and Lomb, and Xerox. But they are now all of them pretty much gone. Each of them has suffered. Uh, 
either uh, a lack of business. Kodak, for instance, did not get on the um, the digital camera uh, parade right. uh, or train, uh, pick your metaphor, and wound up uh, losing their business. So mm. now it just uh, makes chemicals and a small amount of film. And But they were the originators of strip film. They were the ones that made movies um, possible with the kind of uh, strip uh, film that uh, that they shoot movies on, huh. have done for um, not quite a hundred years, but a long time. A long time. What do you remember about Rochester? <laughs> it's uh, cold in the winter. There's an awful lot of snow. We uh, once, when I was in high school, got a over 160 inches of snow once once winter. My 160 God. inches. And uh, almost any year, you can go around Rochester, and if you find the a, uh, a shaded spot where they have pushed snow uh, together in a parking lot, for instance, there's still piles of snow. It is now the middle of June. So there's always snow. That's well, it finally goes away in June, but uh, <laughs> there are piles of snow, dirty uh, by now, and, uh, you know, but... Um, it's very snowy. I mean, besides the snow, do you have fond memories of that place? Of course. You yeah. grew up in a place. I thought it was the best place in the world. What were you like back then? What was I like? Yeah. What was Robert like, Robert Foster, as a high school kid? Um, without uh, much direction. I, uh, uh, My father, who uh, was... Uh, my father, who had an interesting life of his own, who was a logger and then an elephant uh, trainer on the Ringling Circus, and then uh, flew in World War II, and then came out and uh, uh, started a little business, a dry cleaning business. Uh, That's a hell of a unique life. Well, he had a unique life. And um, uh, he always, however, said, uh, you're going to go to college, Bob. So I had the uh, the initial notion, uh, whatever college was, I was going to go. So he says you have to go to college. He insisted that I was going to go to college, and so uh, eventually uh, I graduated from high school and applied to several schools, got in one, went there for a year, Heidelberg College in Ohio. Then I uh, transferred to a place closer to home. I had a girlfriend in Rochester, so I didn't um. want to be that far away. So I went to Alfred University, which is about 60 miles from Rochester. Uh-huh. And then after three semesters, I couldn't take it anymore, and I transferred to the University of Rochester, and I graduated from the university. So, so was this? did you move back for the girl? Uh, well, you know, some th- it's, it's strange how things happen uh, uh, it wasn't the same girl that I uh, that I that I traveled to Rochester for. Uh, it was a new girl. It was no girl at all. But I wanted to get closer to home. Uh, but I did meet a girl, and my first day of my senior year in college, um, eventually I married her, and uh, we have three daughters. Oh, wow! That's and did you know when you met her? You were a senior in college. Somewhat around my age-ish. Uh, I can't even fathom seeing someone now and being like, yeah, that's, I'll marry that person. And Well, falling in love. Everybody understands that. And, uh, and it was the very first day of my senior year at the university. Right. I pulled into a parking spot, and before I could even turn off the engine, in front of my car walked a beautiful brunette. She was wearing a black London fog raincoat, high heels. 
I was struck by lightning. Uh-huh. I leaped out of the car. I followed the girl. I was trying to think of something to say. Uh, <laughs> she walked into the auditorium. I followed her into the auditorium. You followed her in there? They were doing an audition for Bye Bye Birdie. I had never seen the play, and I hadn't seen the movie, but I had seen the trailer to the movie, and I knew it was about a guy with a gold suit who did a who did a uh, an impression of Elvis Presley. I said, "That's how I'll meet the girl. I'll be in the play." Mike, <laughs> you were committed to this. Well, I, I you know I was following my some instinct, right. and uh, I auditioned for the play for the part of the guy with the gold suit. They didn't give it to me. They put me in the chorus. I went the following day to look for my name by the guy with the gold suit. It wasn't there. My name was by the chorus. I said, nah, I don't want to be in the chorus. And then I thought, well, gee, I'd like to meet that girl. Was she in the chorus? No, she was in the, uh, she was in the production. Uh, she was, I don't remember quite what, but I decided to stick. I did meet the girl. And eventually, uh, a couple of years later, I called her up. I mean, this is after uh, uh, a lot of things had transpired, including me going to New York City and getting a job and uh, oh. being on Broadway. And I came back and uh, called her up and said, hey, June, you remember me? And she said, sure. I said, let's have coffee. And, uh, and I was broke at the time, uh, right. so coffee was the limit. And I said... Uh, and after several days, I proposed to her. So I had held this in my mind for a very long time. So you guys had a coffee date. We had a coffee date. It uh, extended to uh, dates uh, four or five nights in a row. And uh, that was the... Um, and that was all you needed? That was all I needed. That's incredible. You, I mean, I don't. I, it's, maybe it's a, a strange and silly generational thing. But to me, like that's an amazing, like five dates, Robert. If I proposed to someone after five dates, I mean, they would strangle me. Your they, mother would kill you. They would, yeah, her first. Mm-hmm. And your parents, what did they think? Uh, well, I'm. Uh, I've always, always had my own choices. Uh, one of the things I, uh, I'm grateful for is uh, the uh, the kind of. Um, freedom that my mother and father always seemed to uh, give me. Right. Uh, my father, boy, he gave me something when I was five years old that uh, probably, uh, what, uh, probably was a an indicator for me. I lived on a little street. The street was, you know, not heavily traveled. Uh, right. And there was a girl across the street who I liked. Her name was... Um, Grubaugh, Janice Grubaugh, and I was crazy about Janice Grubaugh. She was six, I was five, and during those days, you had to get somebody to cross you across the street. I had to get my aunt or my mother or somebody (laughs) to let me cross the street. My father gave me some instruction on how you watch for cars when there were some. They weren't a lot of cars, and he gave me the permission to cross the street on my own. I was five. Wow. She was six. I could cross the street and she couldn't. Right. I felt like a big guy. Yeah, you're a big man. Oh, big God. five-year-old man. Big five-year-old man. So I can tell you that my father gave me the responsibility that I needed to make my own choices with, and I've done that for my own children. Uh, I've given them, uh, you know, I've thought a great deal about parenting. I've right. got four, four children, and I... Uh, as early as they could take any responsibility of any kind 
for uh, picking their own clothes or cleaning up their room or whatever it was. I gave them the responsibility so that they would know what what mistakes cost them. So you were not you weren't someone when they went away for school that was upset. You seem were you okay? You were just like, oh well, you're mature and you're growing up and it's time to go. Well, sure. Uh, you look. You cannot. You can't protect them enough. Huh. Sooner or later, they're driving a car. Sooner or later, they've got to be responsible for what happens to them and whether they get home at night and all the rest. Right. So you uh, you propose. She says yes. Yes. And you guys moved to New York? No, we uh, got married in Rochester. The uh, minister thought for sure she was pregnant uh, because of the speed with which I insisted we uh, do this. Uh, but I wanted to uh, to do it quick because I had a deal at Fox. I had been on Broadway. Right. Uh, in a. Uh, you said you were poor in New York. Pardon me. You said you were pretty poor in New York. Oh, I had nothing. I yeah. was broke for many, many years. How would you make it work? Which part? Being poor in a city like that. Uh, um, well, I, there's two rules of money. I have two rules of money. <clears throat> yeah. Rule number one: It doesn't matter how little you got, you can survive on it. Rule two, it doesn't matter how much you got, you can spend it all and be in trouble. So. When did you learn that? Oh, I don't know. I probably learned it early, but I formulated that particular uh, <laughs> little, uh, those little rules not so long ago. Right. They're good rules. They're good rules. Okay, so you guys moved back to Rochester. No. Oh, we, do you get married in Rochester? We got and married then you're in Rochester. Go, right. we, she had a car. We drove oh. to Los Angeles. From Rochester. From Rochester, well, 1966, on Route 66, when it was still, when there still was right. a Route 66. Tell me, what is that, what is that ride like to move from Rochester, your hometown, and you're married, and yeah. you're starting this whole new life, and you have this deal, and marriage is new, and you're taking, you're, this is a long drive. Well, uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the first step in our, uh, in our uh, married life. Yeah. Um, that was your honeymoon. Somewhat. We got here to Los Angeles after, I suppose, three days or four days. You know, we were, I, I drove um, steady. And uh, we took an apartment right close to where we are now on Fountain Avenue. Um, and uh, the phone was installed. It took several days to install a phone in those days. And the very first phone call was to the agent. The agent says to me, do you know who John Houston is? I said, no, I don't. He said, well, he's a big guy in this business, and he wants to meet you for reflections in a golden eye. I read it quick. I jumped on an airplane. I flew to New York City. It was a hot Saturday. I found this hotel where I'm going to meet this John Houston. I walked into the lobby of a hotel on Madison Avenue and uh, as my eyes are adjusting to the dimness of the light inside everywhere I look everywhere everywhere there's guys they all look like me this is a cattle call holy <laughs> moly I thought this guy wanted to meet me for reflections in a golden eye I flew all the way from California I took a hike I walked around Midtown for a couple of hours you didn't even talk to him oh there were there were 40 guys in the lobby. All right. 
Uh, I uh, I walked around. I talked to myself. I said, Bob, you came all the way from California. Don't you think you got to go over there and say something to this guy? I had a plane at 5 o'clock to go back to uh, Rochester and then on to uh, here to Los Angeles. And uh, eventually I talked myself into going back. I looked around. When I got to the hotel, there were less guys. I put my name at the bottom of the list. Eventually somebody calls my name. I'm escorted up the elevator. At we this wait time, outside are you, of the are, you room. are you Robert Forster or For, uh, Foster? No, I'm. Boy, I think I'm Robert Forster by then. Yeah, okay. I, I had done a play, and uh, as soon as I, as soon as I joined the union, I realized there was a guy by the name of Robert Foster in right. the union, and so the agent snuck an R in my name, and now I'm Robert Forster, <laughs> um, and. Uh, Eventually, somebody uh, is escorted out. I'm escorted in. I'm introduced to this tall, old guy, John Houston. What have you done? What have you done? I said, look, I haven't done much. I did one Broadway play. I wasn't bad, but I don't make myself an actor. <laughs> is that how he sounded? Yes. Have you ever heard John Houston? Uh, not. In, I haven't heard your impression of him before. Well, no, wait a minute. It's not a bad impression. Let's, uh, let's start with the facts. It's not bad at all. <laughs> he said, what have you done? And I said, I hadn't done much. I uh, never made a movie. I never, I don't know what the tricks are. But if you hire me, I told him, I'll give you your money's worth. He says, Ray, Ray Stark, a big producer, come in here, Ray. I'd like you to meet an actor. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? I told him I only did it once. I didn't want to oversell myself. In comes Ray Stark. I shake hands with him. I turn back to the big guy. The big guy says, you'll be hearing from us. I figured when somebody says you'll be hearing from us, you never hear from anybody. Exactly. I went back to the airport. I flew to Rochester to say hello to my father on my way back out here to Los Angeles. Right. When I got off the plane in Rochester, only two hours after this meeting with John Houston, my father says, quick, call your agents. They just made a deal. So... Uh, I was uh, I was astounded. I had no idea they make they make decisions that fast. But there you go. My first picture is uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye with uh, John Houston, Elizabeth Taylor, Marlon Brando, uh, and other Incredible. notables. And uh, and and there you go. I had no idea what was at stake. I, I didn't know that there were a gigantic number of actors and a very small number of roles jobs. So uh, not knowing that was my best friend. I went to New York without having a clue. <laughs> you were on set with Marlon Brando in your first movie. Yeah. Elizabeth Taylor. How old are you at this age? Uh, so uh, call it 1966. Uh, I was 24 at the time. Maybe maybe 25. Maybe I was just 25. And going on to that set, are you feeling terrified? I mean, just intimidated? Not at all. I somehow thought the only people who had anything to worry about were them because they knew what they were doing. Uh, you know, uh, I they couldn't have any confidence in me. I had confidence in myself, but uh, they couldn't have much confidence in a guy untested. Um, so, uh, no, I was, I, I, as I say, I had no idea what was at stake. Hmm. I did not... I did not know how rare this opportunity was. I just was gliding through without knowing that it is such a long shot. Right. So do you remember a certain moment on set on that first movie of yours? Um, 
Yeah, I remember some moments. Uh, John Houston was very good to me. Um, I now, having told him that I did not had never been in a movie and I didn't know how they were made, the about a week after I got back here to Los Angeles after my agent said that they had made this deal, right. they arranged a telephone call between me and Houston. And I'm, now I'm on the phone with Houston, and I say, you know, I appreciate very much that you hired me, and I thank you very much. I said, but do you remember, I said, do you remember I told you I never did a movie? He says on the telephone, I remember. I said, well, um, um, and reading my mind, he says, I'll give you some instruction. Great. The guy's going to tell me how to do it. This is great. About a month later, he comes out to Los Angeles. I meet him at Western Costume. We're going to do the wardrobing. I go straight to him. I said, look, they sent me the script, and I read the script, and you said you had some instructions for me. What are they? And he says, but not yet, a Bobby. Okay, not yet. Maybe he's going to take me on a set. Maybe he's going to take me to lunch. Maybe, uh, who knows? But, you know, he's the boss, and I'm, I'm willing to wait. And I wait and I wait and days go by and nobody calls and days turn into weeks and nobody calls and weeks turn into months and nobody calls. And during this time, Montgomery Cliff dies and has to be replaced by Marlon Brando. Montgomery Cliff was the original character. Oh, wow. And during that period, he died. This thing took months to put the picture back together and to hire Marlon and all of that. Finally, I do get a call. We're going to be down Long Island at an old military base for 10 days, and then we're going to go to Rome, Italy for 12 weeks. Wow. I arrived three days early on Long Island at, at old Mitchell Field, um, and I go straight to Houston, and I say, look, all summer long I've been reading this script, and you said you had some instructions for me. What are they? And he says, but not yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't know what he's waiting for, but uh, now it's the night before we're going to shoot. We're all having dinner. Everybody in the cast and crew, not Elizabeth Taylor, not Marlon Brando, but everybody else. And I'm sitting right next to uh, to uh, Houston. And all during dinner, I assume he's going to lean over and, and tell toss you. me these pearls of wisdom. No such thing. At the end of dinner, I lean over to him and I said, hey, look at Tomorrow morning, we're going to start this thing. Don't you think now's the time to give me those instructions? He says, tomorrow morning, Bobby. Tomorrow morning finally comes. They put me in makeup. They put me in wardrobe. They stick me in a car. They drive to the set. The car comes to a stop. I get one foot out the back door, and from behind, I hear Houston say, now's the time, Bobby. I say, shoot, I'm all ears. He says, go take a look through the lens. I walk over to the camera. The cameraman uh, uh, steps aside. I look through the lens. I turn back to Houston. And Houston has his hands the way they do when they show you what the frame line is with his fingers. And he says, see those? Those are the frame lines. I look back again and I said, (laughs) you mean that line that shows the cameraman what the audience sees? He says, those are the frame lines. Now, ask yourself this. What needs to be there? He gave me one zen-like piece of instruction. He made me realize that 
what was necessary in that frame line was my responsibility. My responsibility, and I had the authority to put inside those frame lines what was necessary. He didn't tell me that I was going to have to do a detective job to figure out what the writer intended. Because, as you know, movies are shot one shot at a time. Right. It's not, you don't shoot a movie, you shoot one shot at a time. And in that fraction of the content of the movie, the writer has some needs for you. He wrote the thing with, with intentions, and you've got to understand the writer's needs so that when you hear action, you can deliver what the writer needs. That's not the end of it. The director has created a shot, and in that shot, maybe there's a moving camera, or maybe you've got to move, or maybe you've got to deliver some dialogue, maybe you've got to put a cup in the middle of the table or move uh, some, uh, some props around. You have to know what, that, what the director's needs from you are so that when you hear action, you can deliver the director's needs. Right. That isn't the end of it. The one who set the lights wants you to be in them. The one listening for the words got to hear them correctly. Otherwise, at the end of the shot, somebody says, no good for sound, start again. Or if I put the cup in the wrong spot, somebody says, no good for continuity, start again. (laughs) Or if I do something too big for the size shot I'm in, somebody behind the lens says, no good for composition, start again. Everybody has needs of you, and you must deliver a stroke that advantages everybody's needs at once. And that's not the end of it. The other actor may have to do this, may have to ascend emotionally in a scene. You've got to deliver a little ramp. You've got to create a ramp so that the other actor can emotionally ascend in the scene. And for the one who is cutting this picture together, you've got to understand how the roller coaster track of this movie is constructed so that you can contribute to the downs and the ups. And going around the curves, if you're not believable, your audience won't be with you at the end of the ride. You owe your audience something as well. And for the one who hired you, you are responsible for helping them get their schedule done on time. you got to be ready on that first shot so that when you hear action, you can deliver uh, a, um, a, a good take quickly so that they can cut print and move on to the next shot it is a it is a a real interesting proposition each shot is a little bit like a magic trick you got to learn the trick you got to be you got to understand what has to happen in that trick and when you hear action you must fulfill the needs of everybody on that set everybody is your boss everybody needs something from you and creating an action which advantages everybody's needs at once is not that hard actors do it eight days a week So I remind people who are not actors that if they wish, they can create better actions, ones that that contribute to everybody else's needs. It is not that hard. Actors do it all the time. It is possible to create a stroke which advantages more than just yourself. Hmm. And uh, these are uh, the kind of uh, uh, things that on a daily basis anybody can be doing. It goes goes back to the same thing you, you were talking about with parenting. Houston gave you that responsibility from day one. Yes, he gave me the responsibility you had done and no, the authority to yeah, do it. Right. You had done no movies, and he said, know what's necessary in the frame. Yep. It was 
zen-like. I'm not sure if that's sort of correct uh, yeah, description, it, I, but I think it was it a very little piece of information that has unfolded to um, to unfolded uh, to to be what it is that I. You know, I go with that information. I go with that as uh, as uh, true. Um, actors, uh, you never know where you're going to start picking up information, but I'm sure that every actor from the first time he or she ever said to himself, God, I think I'd like to be an actor, you start collecting ideas. And uh, that was uh, an, an important idea that I, uh, that I was given by uh, John Houston. So what happens after 67? Um, I, uh, I have a... Uh, uh, an ascending career for about five years and uh, then I have a uh, television show that fails uh, Banyan uh, uh, was uh, cancelled uh, then I uh, do a couple of pictures then I have another television series that, that fails and then I start sliding well and hold on we're, 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 we're jumping ahead well you said what happens after 67 yeah, well, I have five years of ascend and then about 27 years of descend. Well, <laughs> let's, uh, what happens, what, what year is medium cool? Medium cool is 1968. Okay, so this is like right after that yes. you did medium cool. Well, right after um, uh, Reflections in a Golden Eye, I did the, well, I went, I went to work as an iron worker for a while because I didn't have a job. And then I uh, got a job uh, with Gregory Peck, yeah. the Stalking Moon, a Western. And then medium cool. What was what was Gregory Peck like? He is as he was as good a guy as he seems. He to seems be. like one of the what best human a, beings. Yes, what a good guy. Clean, lovely guy. Uh, had a great voice and uh, and uh, was a genuine uh, gentleman. Huh. Did you guys become friends after, after on that well, set? Well, uh, you know, friends all in in respect that yes, he was a good guy. He loved it when I when I got nominated um, for Jackie Brown, yeah. which is many years later. Yeah, I, can't I wait, ran yeah, into yeah. him only rarely. He, uh, I went to him to ask him how you get into the um, the academy, right? And uh, he sponsored me. He was my sponsor into the academy. The first time I asked him, he said, well, you have to do a few pictures. Um, I asked him right away, how do you get in the academy? And he said, uh, you give yourself a little time, have a few more starts, and, uh, and, and apply, and they will, the, uh, the nominating committee will, uh, will talk about it, and, uh, and then they let me right. in. Gregory Peck, to me, uh, having only seen him in movies, seems like the type of person that I'd like to go to for advice. He was a genuine guy. And, uh, and, you know, he was what he looked like. Hmm. George Clooney is another good guy. He's what he looks like. He's a real good guy. And and you see these things in their work. I remind actors, if they want to be admired by an audience, they need to make themselves into someone who their audience can admire. Right. Um, and so uh, the camera looks deep at you. The camera really catches who you are. And if you're a jerk, uh, chances are the camera will catch it. So <laughs> if you want to be a guy who they admire, be a guy who can be admired. So do you consider yourself a good guy? I consider myself a straight shooter. Yeah, I play for the most part uh, good guys. 
until you I get a stretch of bad guys. Right. Uh, Before we get to that, cause I, I do want to talk about your 13 years of bad guy roles. 13 years oh. of uh, playing, uh, right. yeah, bad guys. What was uh, Medium Cool has sort of, I think, grown in cult status and ascended only since you know since coming out in, in 68. And um, I know Wexler recently passed away. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you wanted to... I'm just interested on what happened on that shoot. What do you remember about the movie? Well, the, um, the, movie, was, the movie started out as um, a story about a kid from Appalachia who, uh, who loved <coughs> pigeons and, uh, and a news photographer, a news cameraman. Uh, in the city of Chicago during uh, the summer of 1968, which was eventually a very um, important political year, as right. you, as history tells us. Um, but the if the script was, uh, call it 100 pages long, we shot at least 200 pages worth of uh, material. <laughs> so uh, one thing led to another. I did an improvisation. That uh, led to something else. We shot at a fight uh, fight gym we shot uh, uh, in uh, Washington DC we shot in Minnesota the Illinois National Guard taking training this picture expanded uh, by virtue of the um, the political implication mm. the political um, uh, leanings of Haskell Wexler were you as political as the film at that time no not at all uh, he was the political guy. I was uh, non-political. Politics is a strange thing. Politics really is another word for self-interest. And uh, it doesn't matter when people say, well, it's political. That just means that somebody is self-interested and trying to, uh, you know, uh, gain position. Right. Um, I had no politics at the time, but I realized early on that uh, the character that I was playing, a uh, cameraman, uh, had to have a either a political view, which I noticed that an awful lot of the uh, the news people I came in contact with had strong political views, or what I thought was more appropriate, and that is a neutral political point of view, so that the story, whatever it is, uh, could be told um, with with. With not a bias on it, I, I somehow assumed that what uh, that's what uh, um, journalism was uh, right. non biased uh, reporting, and so um, I, I brought a frame of reference, whatever that was at the time. I can't quite remember, but you know, it's fifty almost fifty years ago. People rarely say the real reasons for things. Big corporations never do. Just politics, plain bureaucratic. Politics. So after Medium Cool, you have this ascendancy. You do more and more roles. You have a television show that doesn't work out. Another television show that doesn't work out. When when does this like the the, the slide happen? The slide it happens down. gradually. It's you don't gr- you gradual. don't recognize it quite at first. You just know that things are slipping, and uh, then they keep slipping. And the next thing you know, you're uh, you're ter- you're working for uh, scale. When was that? If at all. Oh, in the uh, in the 80s. This early 80s. 90s, yes. By the 90s, I was, uh, uh, you know, working for uh, anybody that I, any job I could get. I had four children. So, in the 80s and, and early 90s, and it's not, it's not going well. Uh, 
No, but uh, it's always going well because, uh, you know, here and there you get work. Here and there you get to ply your trade, whatever it was by then. I felt sure I knew more about it than I did when I first went to John Houston and said I never made a movie. Right. I don't know how they're made. Did uh, you ever feel discouraged? Um, discouraged? I don't feel discouraged much, but I can tell you this. There was a moment, and what year could it have been? Uh, it was in the mid-early 90s, I'd say. I was a runner. I was been a runner for years, and, uh, and I ran the 1989... Uh, marathon here in Los Angeles, oh. 88 or 89. I have the shirt. It'll tell me the year. <laughs> um, they give you a shirt if you finish. Yeah, no, my and, mom has done like 10 marathons. Well, she's a tough guy. It's maddening. Yeah. Who, who is? My mom. Your mom. Well, I, don't know, I don't know how she's done 10. Well, but. I can tell you she's done it with grit and decision and determination because there are points during that, uh, that uh, 26 miles when you say to yourself, I can't finish. Yeah. But you do. You finish because you want to, you need to, you yourself says, I got to. And partly that's the way you run a career. You say, I've got to. I cannot fail. And so I can tell you this. There was a moment at which... Uh, I had stopped running, I had picked up a tennis racket, and was uh, playing tennis on a daily basis, not much, not very well, but uh, just to keep uh, keep myself um, physical. Uh, I'd stopped being a runner, I had run that 1989 marathon and, uh, and ruptured one of my, uh, the second remaining cruciate ligament, so I had no cruciate ligament going for me. From 1989 till uh, I had my knee replaced about five or six years ago. Right. So for 20 years or so, I ran. Uh, not I. I, I, uh, I worked on a uh, on a bad knee. Yeah. But during that period, I was playing tennis and I was going into the tennis park over on Fountain and uh, saying to myself, God, am I going to be able to uh, survive? Am I going to have to think of something else to do for a living? Because uh, I wasn't getting work. I had four kids. They were trying to get them through college. Uh, um, and And I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. I was going into the tennis park, and over there waiting for me was old Joe Stein. Joe Stein was a psychiatrist. This guy was 79 years old. He was still, uh, he had still uh, writing books. He still had patients. This guy could beat me at tennis. He couldn't move very well, but all I had to do was get the ball back to him. He could put it anywhere he wanted on the other court. He was good, Joe Stein. And here he was waiting for me, tapping the ball lightly against the wall, waiting for me. And I saw him over there, and I stopped dead in my tracks. And I said to myself, that's the answer, Bob. Don't quit. If you quit, you've got to think of something new to do. It's going to take you a long time to get good at it, to make a living at it. You've been making a living at it, sort of. As an actor, you're getting better at it. You know what you're doing now that you didn't before. Right. So stick with it. You can win it in the late innings if you don't quit. I said that. It was an epiphany. And at the very next second, the epiphany went further. It said, yeah, Bob, but how do you get from the hole you're in to winning it in the late innings? And that's when I said, you just deliver the best you can right now. This is the right now that you can do your stuff in. Your delivering excellence 
right now will give you the best shot at the best future you've got coming. And it will, uh, and uh, you will get that reward they always tell you you're going to get when you deliver your excellence right now. The reward of self-respect. The reward of satisfaction. If you're looking for the good life, both of these are huge components of the good life. So, I said, you deliver excellence right now. That will give you the best shot at the best future you've got coming. And never quit. You can do it till the end of your days. And then I thought to myself, yeah, but how about that good attitude? They always tell you a good attitude is essential. Because if you don't have a good attitude, you can't deliver excellence. So, step one, accept all things. It does not matter. It does not matter that uh, you're not getting the good jobs anymore. It does not matter that they're not giving you the Winnebago anymore, Bob. Put it behind you. Your shoulders relax. Suddenly you're breathing easier. Once you accept, you take a deep breath, you can accept what is and now move on to right now, which is given this moment your best. So accept all things. That will give you the best shot. That will give you a good attitude. And it doesn't matter if she doesn't love you anymore, Bob. It does not matter all the things that are in the past. Once you accept them, you can now move on to right now and in the now, delivering excellence. When I say excellence, I'm not talking about perfection. Perfection is a sure loser. Excellence is merely, if I'm going to do the job as good as I can think up to do it and actually do it that way, that will give you the reward I talked about, the reward of self-respect and the reward of satisfaction. So the three-step program that I try to sell uh, to my children and to myself, and uh, I know it's true. It happened in an epiphany. It was true. Accept all things. That gives you a good attitude. Deliver excellence right now. That gives you the best shot, the best future you've got coming, and that reward that I talk about. And never quit. You can win it in the late innings. It's not over till it's over. But then it's really over. So <laughs> deliver your best right now. That's the answer. Who didn't love you anymore? Well, uh, anybody who didn't love me anymore. But, uh, you know, sooner or later, uh, somebody doesn't love you anymore. <laughs> Was there someone in mind when you said that? Well, uh, I'm sure uh, the, uh, whoever it was that you loved and lost that was in 1989 um yes so but i'd been divorced for uh a number of years since when did you when did you and your wife split uh after about eight years we had three three daughters three okay yeah. was that painful oh all these things are painful of course they're painful is do you think um that you created this you say you have this epiphany and i i believe it i Oh, it was, uh, it was clear as can be. And it, took, and it took a lot longer to explain than it took to happen. Are you religious? No. Never have been? Um, not in any uh, particular way. Just didn't interest you? Well, sure. The question, uh, you, you ask yourself all the important questions. The first important question is, uh, where did I come from? <laughs> right. The, what's my purpose? Where do I go when I die? Is there God? Did you find an answer to any of these? Oh, Sure. I sure. I, I gave myself uh, years and years of uh, wondering, and eventually, uh, once I realized that uh, if there is religion of any sort, it's got to be from within. If you've got a moral compass, it has to come from experience and uh, and uh, the inside. And so, 
uh, a moral compass is uh, imperative, and uh, how you find it and how it, uh, it manifests itself in you is uh, your journey. But once I realized that uh, um, that if I were to, because if there is a God, then one of the religions probably represents what you are supposed to owe to that God, and if there is. And if there are so many different religions to pick from, they cannot all be correct. Mm. It's either one of them is correct or none of them are correct. And uh, that leads you uh, to be um, uh, an atheist. Uh, but since I'm not that sure of it, uh, <laughs> the agnostic uh, label seems to be the only one that I can um, look to. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure of a lot of things, but I do know that I have a moral compass, and uh, it serves my interest. In the 90s, you have some good work, and then Jackie Brown comes. And then Jackie Brown. Uh, I had only a long-shot strategy by then, and that is that uh, some kid who liked me growing up would turn into a movie maker and give me a good part. And uh, I was sitting right across the street from where we are sitting right now, that restaurant was torn down. They, that what's there now is uh, is uh, was something else. Right. And I, I'd sat there for a long time, and in walks Quentin Tarantino. And as I uh, saw him come in, I uh, had auditioned for him for uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs. Oh, okay. And uh, so I knew that I had known him. I knew that he had known me. I'm not sure he would recognize me, uh, but he did. I yelled at him, and I said, come on over. He came over. We sat, and we talked for a while, and during this conversation, I asked him what he was doing, and he said, I am adapting Rum Punch, an Elmore Leonard novel, to a, um, a movie. He said, why don't you read it? And I did read it, and about six months later, I walked in and went to my, started walking toward my my spot. I had a spot over there. Right. And uh, as, uh, as I walked around the corner, there he was, sitting in my chair, <laughs> <laughs> and as I approached the table, he lifted up this, uh, this uh, script and handed it to me and said, read this, see if you like it. So was, there it he was. He was there waiting for you. That long, yep, that long, long shot paid off. Uh, hard to know, uh, you know, you got to get lucky. I've been lucky. I got lucky with John Houston. I got lucky with the, with the, uh, the very first audition I did in New York City. Uh, and, uh, and got to play. And uh, so one little step after another, you get lucky, you get unlucky. You, uh, you go through thises and thats, and it's all fodder for, uh, a, um, for life, for uh, learning the lessons that, uh, and for answering those questions. Not only uh, where do I come from and is there God, but how do you be a man? What's an artist? How do you be a father? Hmm. What's a husband? These are important questions, and sooner or later you've got to have answers for them. Did you find an answer for the what's an artist question? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. I, I've decided, and you know, you can, boy, there's a lot of, it's pretty subjective. It seems to be subjective. There are an awful lot of people who sell art who want you to believe that if it hasn't been done before, it's art. But simply because something is unique and has never been done before, that does not make it art. I think that art ought to be, I think the word ought to be um, reserved for something of, of high quality and value and something that will have lasting impact, um, that it be, uh, that it share a piece of understanding. I think that something is art, which if the artist delivers 
a stroke which had, which which conveys some understanding that you, the individual, use your life to understand with, and that when you can pass that understanding to someone else by something you've created, whether it is uh, you know physical or a character or whatever your medium happens to be, that art is the transfer of understanding one to the other. Was Jackie Brown a, one of your favorite films that you oh, worked on? sure, sure. Did you know in the moment that you were doing something great? Um, I knew that I hadn't had a big start in a long time. I knew that uh, I had uh, gathered uh, an awful lot in the years that I was um, not working much. And I knew that uh, I was well cast. Uh, he, it was a guy who was, uh, you know, had been there for a long time and was unsung and uh, yet was, uh, was credible and knew what he was doing and did it. Tarantino is an artist. Mm. He, he, uh, he wrote great material. The actor doesn't think it up. Mm. Um, uh, he, uh, he created great shots. And he gave the actors uh, the confidence to know that uh, they were, uh, listen, he cast them. Right. That's, uh, that's uh, the great big uh, uh, barrier. Once you're cast, you know that they believe that you uh, embody what it is they are hoping that you can now uh, deliver on a daily basis. You got nominated for that role. It was your first nomination, right? Yes. yes. When that happened, was that a moment of affirmation? Uh, yes, I'm sure it was. And but but did, you, did you need it? Did you need that? Um, whether you need it or not, it's a gigantic affirmation. And I can remember the exact day. Now, I never imagined that I would get nominated for that. But there was a little bit of talk prior to the, uh, the announcements And, of course, you are expected to slug that movie, and we did press, and we did press, and we did press. Far different from anything that was in my earlier career, because right. 20 years, 25 or more years prior, I had had a, a, a bigger career, and, uh, and they did press differently. But now it's Jackie Brown, and now it's 1989 or 80, uh, 90, 90. 97, uh, yeah. it's 1997. And uh, now they do a gigantic amount of, of press. And so we had been doing press. But on the morning that it was announced, uh, I, uh, I cannot say that I didn't uh, wake up and my eyes looked at the clock and it was 5.30 or whatever time they announced them. And, and uh, the phone didn't ring. And so I went back to sleep. And uh, now maybe 5.35 or 5.40 or whatever the... Just a few minutes later, the phone does ring. It's one of my ex-wives. Robert, you got nominated. Followed by, uh, you know, the, the sound when uh, call waiting. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I said, wait a minute, like, I got, I got to uh, answer this other. Followed by someone else. Followed by someone else. I cannot tell you, I was on that phone. It wouldn't stop ringing. Finally, after about 20 minutes, the publicist got on the phone. She said, I've been calling for 20 minutes. I said, well, geez, a lot of people have been calling me. She said, there's a car waiting for you downstairs. I said, for what? She said, well, you have to go do interviews. There are interviews all set up. for." And I had no idea that was required. 
So I jumped in and out of the shower. I put on a sweater. I jumped uh, downstairs. I got in the car. And 19, I think there were 19, 29, 19, I don't know. There was a nine in there. A lot of interviews I did that day. Some of them were print. Some of them were uh, this kind, radio. Some were television. Um, and um, in, it might have been 2 in the afternoon, 3 in the afternoon when the car was driving me home. And I remember the sun coming through the window, and that was when I had the very warm feeling. I said, wow, you didn't get nominated because people checked your name off. People had to write your name. That's how you're nominated. You, they nominate five names, and right. if you get enough nominations, uh, not enough people write your name down, you're one of the nominees. And that is the moment at which I felt that gigantic feeling of, of warmth and uh, gratitude that I said, wow, these people, your peers, wrote your name down. They know who you are. And because I had had a career that was five years on the upside and 27 years on the downslide. And so uh, there was a moment, of course, when I imagined, uh, you know, I wasn't in it anymore. But here comes Jackie Brown and here comes a nomination. And that moment, I can tell you, was the moment you were asking about. The moment at which you feel, wow, uh, they wrote your name down, Bob. You're not dead yet. It was like the the epiphany, yeah. That you had. It was a great and, moment, and it came and it came true. Though you prophesied that if you just, uh, well, uh, you know, you uh, you keep yourself uh, ready, in yeah. hopes. Yeah, it's an amazing story. Where are you going? Spain. Madrid or Barcelona? Mm, Madrid first. Have you been there? I hear they don't eat dinner until midnight. You want to go? Thanks, but. Uh, you have a good time. You sure I can't twist your arm? Thanks for saying that. But no. Are you scared of me? A little bit. I have this menu up in front of me. All right, so you're looking at the menu. Now, during the years in which I wasn't working much, I decided that uh, I'd better open that little actor's workshop because uh, that's what you do right. here in Hollywood uh, when, you don't have, when you're not getting work. And I did. I opened up a little workshop, uh, real cheap. I always told actors, find a place that's cheap. If it's not cheap, somebody's got their hand in your pocket and will never take it out. Uh, and um, and you should work every single time. That's the, the two things I remind actors when they're looking for a class. One that's cheap and one they work every single time. And after about a year of doing that, I had been telling these stories. And somebody said, why don't you have a story night? And, I'll inv- and so we invited a bunch of people who had never been to the class. And I did the stories. That was the beginning of the menu. So all of those stories uh, were stories that I had told actors. And then there was a moment at which a guy handed me a magazine called Speakers for Free, and I decided, okay, that's what I'll do. I'll become a speaker. And uh, this is, these are my topics. And so I created a menu of about 15 items right. and uh, put myself in that magazine. It was not free, by the way, that, uh, the ad. And the first call I got was from 
a um, a corrections officer in the uh, the the Los Angeles or or L.A. County Department of uh, Corrections. He said, "Would you be willing to speak to some white collar criminals?" And I said, "Sure." And so I prepared my menu. That's when I first put the stuff down on paper. And I drove downtown to a uh, facility where these white-collar criminals were all waiting. And I uh, saw the building. It was up there, up ahead, on the street that I was on. And as I approached the parking lot, I got cold feet. And I drove past the parking lot and went started around the block. And I said, "Oh, what's what's wrong, Bob? What are you what are you scared of, Bob? <laughs> you know, just get the in there and who, do your thing." The man whose first movie was on the set with Marlon Brando and Elizabeth Taylor is now scared to do a speech in front of white collar criminals. I can tell you, uh, I asked myself. Uh, what what do you think you have to tell these guys? These guys have had real life experiences. They've been in jail, <laughs> and uh, here you are coming to talk to them about what? About your baloney? So I drove around the block, and as I was about ready to pull in to the parking lot for the second time, right. I got cold feet again. Uh oh. I drove past the parking lot and went around the block one more time. Third time the charm. And now I'm now I'm sweating and now I'm flopping and now I'm thinking, oh God, Bob, what are you going to tell these guys? What have you got to tell them? And then, like that epiphany, it came to me, Bob, tell them the truth. And once I said that to myself, it was easy to pull into the parking lot. I parked. I walked in there. Here's about 50 guys. They all have white jumpsuits on. I passed out my menu. I said, uh, okay. Um, They gave me an hour. And I said, uh, pick something from the menu. Somebody said one of the menu items. I started talking, and I can tell you that that hour went by like that. that. That's when I realized that I could get away with it. It was most exhilarating. It was one of the most exhilarating moments of my life. Okay. So first time I talked. And from that point on, uh, I've talked to an awful lot of groups. I still have a menu. The menu is now uh, expanded a little bit. And it's uh, categorized in, uh, in a way that you, you're looking at it. There's uh, stuff about actors. And I don't usually talk to actors. I talk to other kind of groups. Right. But my core material has a lot of stories that really do apply to what I do as an actor. Uh, and the John Houston story, which you heard earlier. There's a few is, of these that we've hit. That. Yeah. And, um, and there are other stories. And uh, So how about uh, 9 out of 10 women? 9 out of 10 women. I am proud to say, and it may even be true, that I can wash a set of dishes quicker, cleaner, and change a baby neater than 9 out of 10 women. These were jobs I hated. These were jobs I loathed. I remember the first time my mother told me, Bob, I might have been 9 or 10, and it was a Saturday morning, and she said, Bob, one of your jobs is going to be to wash the dishes. I said, Ma, I don't want to wash the dishes. She said, yes, Bob, that's going to be one of your jobs is to wash the dishes. I said, Ma, I don't want to wash the dishes. I don't want to wash the dishes. She said, Bob, stand by the sink. Maybe they'll do themselves. They didn't do themselves, damn it. And I washed the dishes, and I hated washing the dishes, and I hated washing the dishes. And all through high school, I had to wash the dishes. And then I got into college. What do you think my job was? I'm assuming you washed the dishes. I washed the dishes, and it got worse. I became the pot and pan guy. Big, 
big pans of scraped on scrapes, greasy and stuff that you had to scrape. Anyway, I learned how to wash dishes. Um, and there are three, uh, now four, secrets to washing dishes. Anybody who's washed a lot of dishes will tell you these are true. Number one, get them wet as fast as you can. The faster you get your dishes and, and pots and pans wet, the easier they are to, uh, to clean. Second, use the hottest water you can tolerate. This way uh, uh, it, uh, it works better. Third thing is do it without gloves. This way you know whether they're clean, whether the, your, uh, your, the stuff you're washing right. is clean, and whether you got the soap off. And the fourth thing, which is uh, new since I started washing dishes, is liquid soap. They didn't have liquid soap back when I started washing dishes. You used powdered soap, you threw, you, and you mixed it up. But, uh, or it was different in any event. But never, this is rule four, never put the soap on the surface you are washing. Always put it on the back of the sponge, not the rough side of the sponge. That's what you're going to wash with. But the back of the sponge part, put the liquid soap on the sponge part. Otherwise, it takes forever to get them, uh, to get them rinsed. So those are the four secrets. I learned to uh, organize my work and, be, uh, and, and just... Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, persistence. Um, just get it done. I was, they were paying me 50 cents an hour to wash those dishes. I sure didn't want to spend any more time than necessary uh, uh, doing the job, even at that lordly fee. Uh, so, um, and I remember, and I claim also to be able to change a baby. Yeah. I had four children. I remember when I saw my aunt uh, diaper one of my cousins, and I said, Oh, I'm never going to ever touch that. You know, in the old days, they didn't throw the diapers away. They reused them. And you may not realize this, but after you take that dirty diaper off a child, you know what they did with it? No. They went to the toilet and reached in and shook it in the toilet. Jesus. Oh, Jesus. That's what I said. Never. I'm never, never, ever going to do that. Then they had to wring it out and throw it into a, a, a pail to be washed. Never, ever, never, ever. Then, of course, I started having children, and guess what? You did that? You have to not only do it, but you have to know what you're doing because this is not a job like dishes. Why didn't you just buy them more diapers? They didn't have those kind of diapers, so those kind of diapers were just coming into use. They They were cloth diapers at the time, and so this is a job that you do not do as you do dishes as fast as you possibly can this is a moment of bonding between you and your baby so you know what you do first you get the water the right temperature because if it's too hot or too cold you know what happens then you wash that little bottom you get it nice and clean and then you dry it off and then you put the lotion on and then you finish it up with some powder and then you put the new diaper on and if there's an accident while you're while you're doing it, you start by getting the water the right temperature again. This is not a job you do as fast as you can. But I remind people that any job can be raised to the level of an art form, any job of any kind, even washing dishes, even changing a baby. And once you are good at it, every time you do it, you get that reward that I used to talk about, that I've talked about before, the reward of self-respect, the reward of satisfaction. This is one of the things you get when you take any job of any kind and raise it to the level of an art form. You ever see a good shoe shine guy? Mm-hmm. Snap that rag, put a shine on your shoes, entertain the people standing around, put a rhythm down. 
Any job can be raised to the level of an art form, and whenever you do it, you get that reward I keep talking about. Here's the last thing. I promise this is the last thing. You can recite your favorite poem? Oh, my favorite poem. And this is, some, this is a poem that my father must have read to me at, a, at an impressionable age. And it stuck with you. Oh, uh, I learned it. Uh, let's see if I can remember it correctly. It is the poem, If, Rudyard Kipling's If. And it begins, we all know the beginning, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating. And yet, don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools or watch the things you gave your life to broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it all on one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone and so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them hold on if you can speak to crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you if all men count with you but none too much. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I offer that to courageous women as well. This is the poem, If, by Rudyard Kipling. Robert, uh, Bob... Thank you so much for doing this. You're so welcome, Sam. A pleasure being with you, and uh, and uh, and uh, good to see you. Thank you. Well, there it is. We'll be releasing some bonus content with Forrester uh, later on this week, so do keep an eye out for that. You can catch Robert's latest film, The American Side, as it continues to roll out in select theaters this summer. The film is also available on iTunes, Amazon, Hulu, and Google Play. And a big thanks to director Jenna Ricker and actor Greg Stir for making this one possible. Lastly, a special thanks to Robert again for coming on the show. If you're listening, do be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and SoundCloud or your favorite podcasting app. If you want to drop us a line about anything, feel free to email the show at talkeasypod at gmail.com. You can also follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. 
As always, our theme music is provided by Vanilla. Our executive producer is David Chen. Graphics by Ian Jones. Original illustrations by Krishna. Social media by Maria Mayella. The show is produced and edited by Coria Tad. I'm your host, Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. People. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.